Wagwan, everybody. Welcome to the Dis Afimi History Podcast, where we'll be speaking about history and as well family history and how history relates in terms of Caribbean people um, for the present as well as in the past and how in the past what that does and brings forth for what we are going through at present and what we can learn from our history, from our family, and take that moving forward. So I do hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you like it, please ensure to subscribe, like, and review. Thank you. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with David Ryden, who is an Associate Professor of History at the University of Houston downtown. Dr. Ryden will be sharing his expertise on manumissions in Jamaica, as he has researched this subject for several years and offers gems on understanding these documents. The article, Manumission in the Late 18th Century Jamaica, written by the professor, will be linked in the show notes. And without further ado, let's have a listen to the discussion. Thank you so much, David, for coming on to the podcast to take your time out of your day to start speaking about, you know, manumissions, in particular Jamaica, uh, in terms of where manumissions were used uh, to free the enslaved and, of course, to discuss, you know, all of those details as to why that would have been used. And, you know, we'll start with, you know, how or what exactly defining these many missions, if you could. Great, great. Well, I just want to thank you, Wendy, for having me. Uh, this is terrific. It's a great opportunity. Um, I don't get many calls where people are interested in something I've worked on. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> um, it's a, a pretty narrow field, but um, I think it's one that genealogists would really be interested in. Yes. Um, it's uh, um, uh, many missions are, um, they're more... They, they happen in nearly all sl slave societies, particularly urban slave societies, going way back to ancient Rome. But you see the same in Latin America, uh, as well as English America, as well as uh, French America. So into the early modern period, you'd see examples of manumission. And what it basically is, is a, um, it's a, it describes the process in which an individual slave owner would free his or her enslaved, uh, uh, enslaved either men, women, or children. And um, it was, I guess, voluntary. I think that's the, yeah. the key term. So it's not emancipation or forced manumission, but rather these are voluntary manumissions. And sometimes to a modern reader, oftentimes to a modern reader, they're quite surprised to see that this ever happened. Um, that there was uh, examples in which a master would feel compelled for one reason or another to free his or her slaves. Um, rarely did you ever see anybody free all of their slaves. Yes. <laughs> uh, an yeah. example, though, would be, say, the Quakers in um, different parts of the Atlantic world. But in Pennsylvania, there was this movement right around uh, the 1760s, 1770s, in which people... Uh, basically divested themselves from slavery for moral reasons. Um, I haven't seen that in Jamaica in any of the records I've looked at. There, there's no misgiving about, you know, in the actual deeds about the institution of slavery itself. There are other reasons um, that these masters manumitted their slaves. No, yeah, no, you're right. Because um, it's just... Um, 
very interesting when you do look at these documents and how, you know, as a researcher in genealogy, how it connects to the family and how, um, you know, certain, certain things have come about because of it. And, you know, would you say that for these types of documents that this is like a primary or a secondary document that uh, someone would be looking at? Well, these are, as, as far as what historians call primary sources, it's, mm -hmm. it's any source that was uh, basically created during the period in which we're studying. So uh, these are all primary sources. They're all uh, not only primary sources, but they're manuscript sources. Um, some of these, you know, in, and I guess I could, I, I'm a little bit, uh, whether I should be talking about the sources at this yeah. point, or, or we can talk about them in more detail, yeah. but, but they're, um, they were very important records. You can imagine um, they were, uh, basically a property as far as the law was concerned. They, you know, the, the law had this legal fiction that people were property or to be even more specific that they were chattel, meaning movable property. And <clears throat> so um, these were, so, so the law pretended or constructed this idea that enslaved people were indeed um, property, even though, the reality was far different um, and masters knew that there's all these logical inconsistencies for example um, enslaved people seem to have property and sometimes buy bought their own freedom well how could a per, how could a piece of property buy yes. you know have the property buy his or her own freedom but nonetheless these documents are kind of written as a contract as a property transaction and so they're very important um, primary sources, and, and they were important, obviously, to the people whose freedom depended upon them. And they were ultimately filed in the Island Record Office to the, um, really to the Secretary's Office in, right there in the, um, in, in King Square in Spanish Town. And there are something like 60 of these volumes of these manumission deeds. So, um, they're really remarkable. Some of them have been recopied. Um, if you look at the back of them, if you ever have an opportunity to either go online and look at the volumes, see some of the, um, the last page, it will describe that these are either originals mm -hmm. or they are, it's a sign or copies of the originals. And so for some, <clears throat> I guess uh, my, my assumption is that the materials were degrading and so the uh, record office basically was uh, called upon by the um, assembly to, to basically make sure the records were being maintained well. And, and some of it had to be recopied by hand. So we've got yes. um, <laughs> mm -hmm. really remarkable. And it's really remarkable that this was done after slavery. Yes. Um, that's how important these documents uh, continue to be. So, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're very vital. Mm -hmm. And I know that we, you know, you just talk, kind of talked on in terms of, you know, why these uh, types were used, because, you know, this discussion is primarily based off of your um, article, Manumissions mm. in Late 18th Century Jamaica. So if you could just be able to go into why these manumissions would be used and the examples sure. um, for that. Sure. So, so um there, there could be a number of reasons um, why a master, he or she, would free his or her slaves. And I'm going to give the 
basic version. And maybe as we discuss things, we'll find more complex examples. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I structured the article. Yeah. That I suppose there are are examples in which enslaved people were freed for payment. So this payment came uh, and oftentimes we're we're unsure where that payment actually originated from. Um, I sort of just based on a sample, I looked at one volume, volume 11, and had just over 300 uh, manumission deeds. Um, about 30% of those records involved a bona fide payment. What I mean by bona fide payment, a substantial amount of money. Uh, the amount of money that, uh, uh, and I hate to you know, be so crass about yeah. it, but the amount of the people would be sort of worth if they were sold. Um, so these were compensating the master for his or her loss of property. So about 30% of the records involve payment. It's always ambiguous when we can discuss and when we look yeah. at the actual deed, where that money is actually coming from. There's exactly. you can only speculate. Um, <clears throat> and then about 20%, um, there was no payment listed. And then about 50% of them, there was just a token exchange of 10 shillings per person usually that was sort of the standard and i think that gets back to my original point that these were viewed as kind of property transactions and in fact if you look in some of the lesser antilles some of the smaller islands uh manumission deeds are oftentimes filed in with land transactions Mm -hmm. and the structure of the deeds look a lot like land transaction deeds Uh, they also look a marriage settlement deeds uh, that were when very wealthy people married one another, sometimes they established who's, it's almost like a prenup and it has some of the same language. But if you were to um, um, sort of Google around some of the phrases, uh, you'll see wherever the English were sort of pops up in India, pops up uh, examples of these legal phrases. Um, I mean, that's that's what we're looking at. The, yes. the English legal ease is what I, I should probably say. So so <clears throat> um, so there was like the other half of the, of, of the um, manumission deeds that I looked at were gratis manumission. So so there was no sort of clear um, money changing hands. Uh, but sometimes these deeds, believe it or not, they'll say um, the master will say, he is freeing uh, individuals, uh, the individuals listed uh, for love and affection. Yes. So you'll see there is this family connection, um, which was much more open in Jamaica than, say, British North America. So mm-hmm. British North America, there wasn't much recognition of children, at least formally, um, and, uh, you know, obviously, uh, for those of you who know anything about the United States, is there's a great deal of taboo, um, in, at least in um, uh, what was voiced uh, amongst uh, a white society anyway. So um, uh, there's also examples of reward for hard work so and loyalty. So that's sometimes listed. Uh, sometimes all of both of those phrases are combined in a last will and testament. And the way that worked is the last will and testament would be, I suppose, a separate document from these manumission deeds. Uh, The will would tell the executor that he or she 
must draw, draw up a manumission deeds. And then that manumission deed would ultimately be filed in the colonial office in the colonial secretary's office. So, <clears throat> so, um, uh, and there was one example in the 300 or so deeds that I looked at uh, where a, a, a woman or a widow uh, who was freeing a slave actually didn't do it on the spot, but said after my death. So it's the only example I've seen of a sort of a forward at some point in time in the future. And I just speculate that maybe that was done in order to really assure the enslaved individual that she would be freed at some point in time once the death, whereas a will could be just changed at any point, right? It's a little exactly. less, so it's a little more tentative. So I thought that was just an interesting case if nothing else. Um, and then last, um, sometimes service for the, to the colony. Um, and this is, again, this is an awkward thing to talk about, but uh, if a, an enslaved person provided some kind of essential service in the defense of the colony from foreign invasion, or even more uh, troubling, uh, revealing a, a slave conspiracy. So there are examples, and you can find statutes in the assembly records um, that would uh, free individual slaves for the service they had done to basically the master class in, in maintaining uh, white power uh, on the island. And so um, um, you find in these manumission deeds every once in a while, the governor is actually doing the manumit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's a very strange that the, uh, it would, it would, that's how important these deeds were. It's like, yes. had to be sort of... Um, um, formally gone through the process. And there were, as we'll see uh, maybe soon enough, that there are a number of people involved to give legitimacy uh, to the deed, for example, witnesses, uh, exactly. the manumitor and so forth. So um, those are sort of the basic, uh, I suppose, examples, but there are some unexpected ones that you find sometimes, for example, um, they oftentimes, as we'll see, they'll, they'll identify what the phenotype of the, of the manumitter is if, if yeah. they're not white. Um, and so sometimes you see people of color freeing slaves. And, you know, some of them might indeed have been bona fide slave owners. I mean, there's examples of that. But I suspect most of these that I describe in my article anyway, or that I've, I've looked at, were free people of color purchasing their loved ones and being just, just basically uh, in law slave owners, but actually just going through the process of purchasing their friends or families and then manumitting them with the express purpose, purpose yep. of manumitting. It's almost giving one more layer of, I suppose, legal defense, right? <laughs> that yes. You are indeed freed if you have one of these uh, records, you know, you've got the sales bill and so forth. So, we can only speculate with a lot of these, um, I guess, theories that this is, a, I'm speculating at this point, because yes. they're frustratingly thin, some of the, um, the deeds. So, yeah. Yes, but they're very interesting documents to look at. You're right. And, and when I, you know, had the opportunity to look at a, a few of them based on just as what you had said in terms of a will giving direction to the executor or the executrice to be able mm -hmm. to say to free this particular person. So, it, you know, as a genealogist, as a researcher, you follow the 
the bits of crumbs that you get yes and uh, you go from the will to to now these manumissions and then you see further layers and, and and as you said in terms of the witnesses sometimes they could have been someone that they were um you know dealing business with or very close some sort of um familiar relationships with right mm -hmm. so because mm -hmm. they tend to be all in the same i guess very you know close close relationships they always had uh prior to so that was just interesting to see in those documents and you know we do have an example here so i'll just share my screen and then of uh, elizabeth edwards right. um to cujo that's right and that it's really interesting how they um and Wendy, you probably, if if you look through a bunch of these, you, you see there's a bit of a rhythm to them. I mean, every once in a while, there'll be one that doesn't follow the same legalese. Um, but what we're looking at here on the left is uh, a nice little thumbnail, which which sort of identifies the manumitter. In this case, it's Elizabeth Edwards, and it's uh, to Cujo. And I can't remember, I want to say something like 15% or 20% of the manumitters, man, sorry, manumittees oh. that I looked at uh, had last names. So it's not altogether rare. I mean, it happens. Uh, uh, and usually there might be two names given, uh, which is kind of interesting. Like another study could be done on that, showing oh. the Christian name and then otherwise known as, you know, um, so, so, but in this case, it's just Cujo, which is interesting in itself because we have a West African name there, um, and, um, uh, uh and no, uh, alternative names here, it's just Cujo. Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess if one were to get here to this particular deed, it would probably be through Elizabeth Edwards, this name, and maybe that particular plantation. Now the, that follows the one that says 20, the 26th or 21st, um, I, I read it as, or is it 24? Hold on here. I thought it was interesting that it's in December because that, that always makes me think. It appears to be 24, yeah. 20, yeah, it's an interesting date, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, now, this would have been, I think, my, my understanding after looking through these is that's the date it was actually brought to the uh, island secretary's office. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not necessarily the date of the manumission. In fact, I saw one that was over a decade between the manumission date and the date, you know, it was from the 1760s and uh, it, it appeared in, in, in actually the preceding volume of this, this one is volume 12. So, mm -hmm. okay, so <clears throat> there's a bit of a rhythm to it. And if you were to sort of, the way, if I could offer any advice to people yeah. who are working with these is um, I, I find I'm a pretty good typist and I kind of found if I type it out, I can sort of follow them. Like the logic, you would be surprised how many prepositions there are. There's like <laughs> of in throughout forevermore. Yes. <laughs> this sort of, this goes over and over and over. So um, sometimes I find that helps me understand what's going on in the text or just somehow to slow my reading down because uh, it is a, a bit complicated, but in the first part, it usually will be an introduction in yeah. the first person saying, here I am, Elizabeth Edwards, and then it will list the parish she's from. And that's basically, um, you know, in, it, yeah. Jamaica in the 18th century had a different set of parish boundaries uh, uh, than, than presently, but you can find maps that will sort of identify them. But this is, uh, in some ways, being St. Catherine is not surprising. There's a 
it's it's where Spanish Town is located. So there's a a town, and 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 manumission tends to be an urban phenomenon. It happened throughout the island in all of the island parishes, but uh, both Kingston and mm-hmm. St. Catherine, uh, basically, that's where the bulk of these manumissions came from, even though they represent a relatively small proportion of the enslaved population, if you if you follow. So yep. um, I think other people who've done research on manumission throughout the Atlantic world will often say manumission is an urban phenomenon, generally speaking, not always. And it has to do with the proximity and the closeness of the master and the enslaved. You know, they kind of develop some kind of relationship with one another. Um, not always, though. Um, yes. That's quite frequent. So, and then it says the county of Middlesex in the aforesaid, um, oh, then it says the aforesaid widow. So we've got kind of an occupation. You know, she's mm-hmm. a widow. <laughs> we know where she's from. These are important clues if you're trying to triangulate this. And then the next sentence, it, it basically says right off the bat, in consideration of a sum of 100 pounds paid by somebody named John Matthews of the parish of St. Catherine. So he lives in the same, who is this guy, John Matthews? None of us necessarily know, you know, this is where the speculating comes in. And what is his connection is he acting as an agent for the person who's enslaved? Um, maybe he's, or being manumitted. Is he basically taking Cujo's money and acting as a fictional purchaser, you know, to, to, to create mm-hmm. the legal fiction to make it all, all work, basically? That, that who, we're not quite sure. Or is he, or is he working for um, Elizabeth Edwards in this case? Yes. <laughs> we just don't know. We don't know. But somebody's paying real money here. I mean, this is a significant sum of money. Exactly. And it identified him as a tailor. And I found that was interesting because Cujo, if you, um, okay, presence receipt. Um, See, so it goes on and on saying that she releases john taylor believe it or not of any future obligations so she spends a lot of time and you'll see that in land deed transactions in english land deed transactions that the buyer it's basically i'm giving you this money and i don't owe you anything else and nor do my descendants so that's what's sort of going Mm -hmm. going on there but then the important part i was just trying to scroll down um i think it says um it says uh, uh, that uh, by these presents, and I, I should I emphasize that because that that confused me for a long time. I'm like, what does that presence mean? And I, I found in a 19th century legal journal is what it means is that by these texts, it's referring to itself. It's a kind of like saying because for a long time I was like, by these presents, are they talking about the money, like being a present or a gift or or is it a form of presence by the people, but it's actually referring to the text. So it's saying by these texts, so you could say by okay. this contract, I do manumise and franchise and forever set free from all manner of bondage, servitude, and slavery whatsoever. A certain Negro man called Cujo by trade, a tailor. Wow. Yeah. Now, rarely do they tell us the occupation. They usually tell us uh, again, the phenotypes, that his name's Cujo. He's not of 
European ancestry at all mm-hmm. makes you wonder is is he African you know that's what yes or you can certainly his probably his you could say at the very least his mother was right or yes. um, when he was named um but it's interesting that he has the same trade as um I blanked on the guy uh John uh Matthews. Matthews. Yeah, they have the same trick. So they know one another, right? And maybe yes. they work together. Um, it's one of those um, very, it, and again, it it does suggest there's this closeness between the parties involved, right? That they're, it's, it's not, you know, some of these manumission deeds you'll run into, the planter might be an absentee in London. And I write about that example, yes. sort of the most excruciatingly long distance communications between a person trying to manumit a, a slave and the owner who's in London. And so they're writing back and forth, you know, trying to negotiate and, and, and come up with a, with, with uh, sort of terms so that the language of the deeds, <clears throat> sometimes they go over and over saying, I'm manumised and franchised and forever set free, but, and none of my children have any claim over uh, this individual in the future. So it's, um, it's pretty, pretty um, powerful in in that way. I think, Um, you know, I was just going to point out just a technical thing. You you notice there's a page number in the bottom left. And I, I, I don't know if this was the Jamaica archive that later penciled in, these numbers, but sometimes that can be helpful if you're a researcher and just trying to, uh, especially if you're now, I, I think this, this actual, what we're looking at here, I should have mentioned, this is from the British Library's Endangered Archive Project. Yes. And they partnered with a number of institutions throughout the world. And I think there's only about 10 or 12 volumes out of the 60 that have been filmed and put up on the British Library website. Exactly. So there's 60 of these. So, um, uh, and and of course, as the slave population grows and the rate of manumission, I mean, it was it was I I estimate based on my sample that in 1774-ish, you know, the early 1770s, it was about 0.75 people per thousand were freed. So it's not very frequently on an annual basis. This is on a yearly mm-hmm. basis. If you go to places like Kingston, it's a little higher. It's a bit higher. Um, um, so it, but by the time you get to the 1820s, that figures like 1.5 for, for the island. So okay. in the 1820s, there's a great deal of me. And I, and the, I, I think you'll find an explosion of manumission deeds at that point. Cause you know, the population is probably around 300,000. I, I should yeah. know these things off the back of my hand, but um, no, I'm no, sorry. That's, <laughs> that's funny. That. That's fine. But, but just to let you know that it, it, it there's a lot more records uh, than are on the British library website. Um, but the British library started with the first ones, which are in the 1740s. Um, so they go back as this was, were there manumissions before the 1740s? Most certainly so. <laughs> certainly mm-hmm. so. Um, are there, were there manumissions made that weren't recorded in these volumes? Probably, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there were some that didn't ever get registered with the island. Um, but probably pretty small because it was so important to get it 
signed, sealed, and delivered quite quite literally with the with the with the island. Um, yeah, I've so read that that some of them are in something that's called a toll book. If uh, you ever run into what a toll book on your trip to Jamaica? Oh, no, I haven't. I yeah. haven't. It's it's supposed to be uh, something where they record. Um, they were in each parish, and they recorded uh, slave sales, um, supposedly, and on these toll books. But I, I personally have not seen a toll book, um, and I don't know if you know. They must be somewhere. I don't know if they're in the. Um, I haven't gone down this route exploring. Um, but again, with slave sales. Are they going to have first and last name? I I don't know. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that would be a hard one. So here we'll yeah. go to the second page just to yes. kind of um, yeah, finalize. Wrap this this up a little bit. Yeah. So so um, there's some repetition that goes on, and it 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 will give you the exact date. So in this case. Um, She set my hand and seal this 26th day of October in the year of our Lord. So it was actually in October that the manumission took place, but it got processed right before uh, Christmas. Yes. And it might have had something to do with Elizabeth was going to Spanish Town at Christmas time, maybe you see, or and maybe mm-hmm. that was the day before they were closed for the rest of the week. I'm not yeah. sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so it could be something like that that could explain the the December 24th date. Um, but um, and then it's signed Elizabeth Edwards, which is useful because you you know you'll see some of these records um, just signed with a mark. We're talking only about 10% of them, but of course it's higher percentage. If you see different, you know, um, if somebody is a, a, a I don't know, a, a, well, female mm-hmm. or uh, a tradesman um, who's doing the manumitted or a person of color, they might be simply leaving their mark yes. um, more frequently than of course a planter um, um, who, who um, you know, is, is certainly um, going to be in the world of literacy. I mean, it's a complex, it's a complex thing. Uh, these planters were privileged, but also um, uh, running a plantation, they had to be able to read legal documents and operate within the capitalist economy, of course. Um, um, so then the last thing um, is um there'll be a memorandum at the bottom and the memorandum is basically somebody it's a declaration made by a witness that he observed all this or she observed all this. And so there'll be another first name and last name. And then there'll be somebody important like here. It was uh, somebody named Thomas Hersey Barrett. And um, so, so it's, you know, you've got a lot of last names here, lots of threads in there. And I think as more and more people digitize these records, we're going to be able to be able to triangulate connections pretty, pretty easily, especially with the um, last names. Um, the only other thing I wanted to add, and yeah. I mentioned this to you earlier, I think, is that I just noticed just serendipitously, I was flipping through them, 
And I noticed that Brian Edwards was like three records before. And Brian Edwards was a very important politician, planter, writer. Uh, he wrote a, a great big volume in the uh, 1790s on, Jam on Jamaica. A lot of historians use it, rely on Edwards. Uh, he was a member of parliament. Um, so he came and li lived as an absentee for a while. So he's definitely part of the, uh, um, you know, the, the Jamaican planting elite. Um, and Elizabeth Edwards, um, I was just sort of Googling around and I was like, when I saw this and his mother was named Elizabeth. So I don't know if this is his mother, sister, um, not sure, but it's just interesting how you can draw these connections. And I suppose it always, when I, when you sort of go through these records, you start to realize what a small place it was um, and how close these connections were, uh, especially amongst the free pop free population of Jamaica. So I think um, I would, I would suspect that genealogists like yourself are going to be finding all sorts of connections with families and yes yeah yeah so um so yeah so that's the structure of the of the of the of the deed did you have any other observations or no but i mean what, what you mentioned is true is that because it was such a small population more than likely there was you know some sort of connections that they had already and you know you see that whether that in this particular document in the manumissions or mm -hmm. in the wills or in even in marriage records right you're mm -hmm. going to see same people or very similar mm -hmm. very signing on certain documents or witnessing certain things on their behalf and it's just following that you know those breadcrumbs and those paperwork that's to a really kind of, good way to phrase it yeah it is like breadcrumbs yeah isn't it? and yeah. you connect them and you look at them all together and you're like wow yeah, it, yeah. It's interesting how those connections, how those relationships were were bound uh, during that time. And and sometimes what's interesting is um, if you start with, say, the legislative record, um, and you look at people being, well, sometimes they 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 wouldn't have been. So so maybe this gets us to our next point, right? Which is mm -hmm. what happens when people are freed. And exactly. Of course, yes. Um, um, I speculate. You know obviously everybody wants their freedom. Um, I think that's universal, right? But uh, you would imagine that certain people probably could operate better in freedom than others. That is Cujo the tailor yes. who worked alongside Mitchell probably could operate in the free world very effectively. Like he could you know, work as a tailor, have an income, and not be harassed or, you know, presumably um, someone who had trouble, you know, speaking English, maybe they're from Africa, mm -hmm. you know, you, you can't imagine in some ways them other than uh, living as Maroons. And I suppose we should have mentioned that, that there's a yeah. whole other class of free people of color, the Maroons um, who are runaway slaves or their ancestors who are runaway slaves living in, in the interior of Jamaica. So I guess if we're talking about, uh, you know, negotiating through one of these manumission deeds, and that's kind of what it was, was a, was a negotiation, except for with maybe children, right? Um, uh, but, but with the adults, 
who make up almost half of the manumission deeds. Um, it's interesting. You look at the children and the majority of the children are of mixed race. You look at the adults and the majority of them are um, of African descent only. Yes. It's, it's interesting. That they, and I suppose um, some people have suggested, I think the mixed population would have been smaller than you think, It'd probably be about 10 or 15% if I'm not of, of the whole population, if you see what I'm saying. So, mm -hmm. so people of mixed race, I guess it's, it shouldn't, you know, if we could probably intuit that they're going to have probably more connections to the free world. Um, and, and um, I talk about this in, in my article that, you know, there's some examples where there were, um, um, the father of children or the liaisons with white men and women who were enslaved, who worked, who were very zealous in trying to get their children or their unequal partner free. Uh, but then there are others, many, many others who just turned their back. And, you know, some of the abolitionists later on would point that out in, in missionaries that, you know, there's all these children that were kind of left by sort of a, revolving door of uh white workers on these you know working for absentees on these yeah. plantations and so um so there's a range you know and you can get a maybe a warped vision if you look at these deeds because you're getting the most zealous you know the most committed fathers and uh of of, of some of those children and um uh, who are actually sometimes paying money uh, and sometimes paying well over. I gave one example of one, yes. one um, uh, uh, blip money to free his son. So, um, um, but what was the what was the life for free people of color? Yes, once yeah. yeah, and it, it, there's a range of experiences. Um, but of course, they were generally, you know, a third class or second class citizens or subjects. Um, you know. Uh, <laughs> What, what happened in the early 1760s is a law was passed. Um, some historians, recent historians have made this argument that, you know, it's really once you get into the 1760s and the 1770s, you get this kind of hardening of kind of racialized, almost apartheid thinking going on in Jamaica. And so in 1761, there was a law passed limiting yep. the size of I suppose, estates that could be passed on to free people of color. And it was limited to a thousand pounds in currency. And so some people have said, aha, see, there's an example they didn't want. So in, in, in the one sense, uh, the, the plantation oligarchy did not want uh, free people of color to be too rich. Yeah. But then they complained that they didn't want to see free people of color who would be too poor and be burdens on the community. And so there's uh, plenty of literature being written in the 1770s, at least by Edward Long, mm -hmm. uh, who is a well-known um, uh, uh, planter, writer, author. Um, and uh, he, he basically expresses this contradictory position, um, concern that free people of color are too rich or too poor, if you see what I'm saying, and that yeah. will be a burden. And so uh, they eventually do pass a, a statute to try to make provisions 
almost to restrict manumission by saying that the manumitter has to at least provide some kind of guarantee that should that uh, free person not be able to take care of himself or herself, that they won't fall uh, be a burden on the parish, if you see what I'm saying. And so they would have to put a bond up to, to um, have an annuity uh, should the free person uh, be unable to, to maintain themselves. So sometimes, despite what the law said, and despite the attitude you read by Long, there are examples in which uh, free people of color through statute, through private acts of the assembly, were given, uh, now it's the wording's always limited. They say the same rights as free freeborn Englishmen except, and then they don't really say what the exceptions are. And the exceptions, yeah. at least my understanding is they couldn't sit in the assembly or the council or on juries. I, I think that might have been the, the limited of their, uh, I, and, and to be honest, Wendy, I need to do more research on that, that okay. myself. So, but I do know that was the, um, uh, there was this avenue to give free people of color more rights or more rights than other free people of color who would, who um, uh, wouldn't be able to, um, a, a common complaint in the 19th century was that free people of color could not give testimony against white people. And this is a, you know, real big hardship because of yeah. that, that basically gives all white people the right to do whatever they want, you know, because one who is of color could not, sort of testify against the person who assaulted them or, or treated them poorly. So um, uh, anyway, so that's, that, that, that's sort of the, um, so there's a variety of stories that one can tell in different experiences. There's free people of color who are quite wealthy, not, a, a, there's a guy named David, uh, uh, sorry, Daniel Livesey wrote a book recently. Okay. Um, talking about basically uh, people who had uh, African ancestry, but essentially passed as white and were part of the elite. Um, some, some elite planters wanted their children to go back to England to go to schools like Eton, for example. And um, so, so there's a range of experiences. Um, no, definitely, because I know um, definitely from what I have uh, been able to uncover where at times, they were free, like some of my ancestors were free, but then they were, you know, there was a special provisions or law that mm. was passed where they were then deemed to be legally white. So mm. they could, you know, go beyond this particular provision that you mentioned in terms mm -hmm. of more than that $2,000 limit mm -hmm. that they mm -hmm. could be able to in, in, inherit the entire estate. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting how the law says one thing, but then there's, this powerful men are, are yes. making sure are making sure that they can bend the law at least through legislation through these private acts exactly exactly <clears throat> it, was a, it was a private act that went through and it was just interesting to know that um you know that people of color could then mm -hmm. be deemed as legally white and have the same provisions yeah i, I mentioned only briefly this uh a uh, a, a gentleman named Dougal Clark, who apparently was an engineer who was uh, skilled 
uh, I suppose, designer. Um, I'm not sure exactly what he designed, but I ran, I found him as one of the sponsors and it listed his occupation. It listed uh, the right parish that he lived in mm -hmm. and it didn't identify him as a person of color. It did. It, so Interesting. It was, it, yeah. It, and, you know, maybe there's two Dougal Clarks and maybe I got it wrong, but, but it's about the same time he received uh, one of those private acts. Yeah. Um, so I think even on paper that colorism almost disappears. Mm -hmm. um, I think more research needs to be done on that. Um, I only have one case, you know, where yes, I ran into that, but it made me think, wow, I wonder, there's a lot to learn um, uh, from these, you know, it's, you would think you have something concrete when you have a primary legal document, but there's so many rooms for speculation and, mm -hmm. and, and avenues to go down that's right. and to kind of tie again it's basically tying everything together mm -hmm. you know from what you're uncovering so you know with these manumissions like you know I, I take it they were used as a tool by the government can you just kind of go a little bit into that as well well i i was thinking primarily in order to keep the slave population divided amongst themselves. Yes. And this is just a sort of a macro strategy that was used on a micro scale on the plantation, uh, this dividing and conquering. Um, it, and, and oftentimes um, people naively ask and wonder like, well, how in the world did, you know, a, a population that represented about 10% control 90%, right? How did, yeah. how did the white, and especially when you go into the countryside, it was far sort of the ratio is even more skewed towards those who are enslaved. And um, I think, and of course this might be controversial, but I think it had to do with just the structure of the plantation in which you had uh, particularly for men opportunities for, I'll put it in quotes uh, for yeah. social advancement. Um, planters were very careful to sort of move men in particular out of the field positions and move them into uh, skilled positions like driver or boiler man or, you know, and, and, and to a certain degree, of course, uh, mixed race males found, you know, they were moved into domestics or moved in, in these more skilled areas than uh, those who were not. So, so that's like constant division going on. Um, in isolation too, I think the plantations mm -hmm. probably worked pretty hard at keeping them isolated. But, um, but I think this whole idea—it's almost a macro level where the assembly rewards individuals with their freedom. You know, that's like the ultimate, isn't it? Um, uh, for basically turning on other enslaved people and revealing conspiracies, um, and it. You know, there was the Tacky's uh, revolt in the beginning of the 1760s. You will see there's a whole series of them in the 1760s yeah. of, of freedom being granted to, to individuals who helped uh, the, basically the colonial power to crush the rebellion and to stomp down any additional uprisings that happened in the 1760s. In fact, that's one of the um, arguments that uh, Trevor Bernard makes um, is that some of that racism that we 
or hardening of racism. And I know that sounds weird because you'd think, well, wasn't it very racist slavery from the get-go? And some historians sort of point to this increasing formalization that's going on, like the limiting of inheritance, for example, that we talked about. That and, and when you read Edward Long, he's got these te- vile racist ideas that he articulates. Like it's it's really the first time it really is articulated in some people say it's the result of that uprising, or at least that's what Bernard suggests, um, uh, um, at least in uh, one or two of his books. So um, and, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a compelling argument. Definitely so. It, it, it goes to the whole, I guess, the power dynamic for mm-hmm. them to use, you know, this as a tool to yeah. be able to kind of control or, you know, as you said, you know, to potentially that somebody could get you know, their freedom. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, a, it's obviously that I, I really like working with these documents for many reasons, but one of them is, is, uh, you know, they, they can be depressing yes. <laughs> because, um, but uh, they're also, uh, you know, the idea that people are gaining their freedom uh, it's like a snapshot of, uh, I suppose something like, that we should all appreciate, I suppose, now looking back, it's very easy to sort of look at the past as this monolithic, uh, I suppose, uh, uh, um, I, I suppose get almost reduce it to a cartoon system of slavery in society and almost take agency away from people of color and say it's all master power and then yes. when you read enough of these, um, you start to see the humanity come out. For example, Cujo, be, I know it sounds small, but him mm-hmm. having an occupation and a connection with John Mitchell and, you know, how is he sort of navigating? I mean, he is doing some active work in getting his own freedom and, and living uh, after slavery and exactly. as a free man. Um you know, when you get to the 1820s, there's more examples of the free population of color working together mm-hmm. um, to fight racism and to end slavery. Um, but when you go to the 18th century, you got to look for scraps such as these these important deeds. And you can see why they've preserved them. They are were very important to the people who were involved. Yeah, no, they absolutely were. And it's harder to get, you know, more information uh, Mm -hmm. from this time frame period. So anything that, you know, a genealogist can get their hands on is great during this particular time frame period. And what would you, you know, I guess just to wrap this up and kind of what, Mm -hmm. you know, would be your, I guess, your final thoughts in terms of with these particular manumissions in Jamaica? Well, I think just, you know, you inviting me uh, has sparked something that's always been in the back of my head every once in a while when you're in the jamaica archives you run into genealogists and it's really neat that we've got the internet and there are so many people working together now and i can't how you know uh you know some how often like I'll, i'll stumble on something that's really useful important whether it's for teaching in class or um in my own research. So um, I thank you and all the genealogists for all the work you, you all are doing and using the internet to, for good, good use. Um, but 
as far as these manumission deeds are con concerned, they really are, they have an addictive quality to them. I mean, I started working on this as almost a side project back in the 1990s, and I restarted the project after I saw the they were up on online again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even I think every anybody who's interested in the history of slavery and or 18th century Jamaica um, could learn a lot just sort of flipping through them. Um, there's a there's a like I said, there's a little bit of a pattern into the logic, but but you can find some interesting stories. And um, I use it with my students. Um, we use the, this these records and have them sort of do a little project where they work together and try to unpack them and maybe code up 10 or 20 of them mm -hmm. as a group. And that's kind of a neat project. And so, um, you know, it, it, even, even if you're not uh, finding a connection to your own family history, I think they tell us a lot about, about Jamaica. Yes, definitely during that time. And, uh, you know, it's, um, mm -hmm. you know, I just definitely want to thank you so much because, I mean, when I first came across these records, I didn't know what they were. I was mm. just excited to be able to find, you know, my family member mm -hmm. uh, in, in some of these documents, but not really understanding the the gravity of what mm -hmm. these records actually, you know, actually represented for that particular time frame period. And, you know, some of the points that you say is, you know, is, is on point in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, that this is the time... Uh, during this particular time, during slavery, during the fact that people were able to kind of find a, a way um, to be able to gain their freedom. Mm -hmm. And it just shows in terms of the relationships that were built and how things really, you know, it's not so much as cut and dry or black and white. It's just, there was a lot of gray in between for some people. Certainly, certainly. And, and a lot of, uh, like I said, agency or people making you know, <laughs> working yeah. through their lives. So it's, it's, I want to, again, I want to thank you. It's, it's been really nice experience for me. I haven't had anybody actually say, Hey, you want to be on my podcast? <laughs> so I really thank you for this opportunity. Wendy. No, thank you, David. I thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Okay. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please make sure to like, follow, subscribe, and write a review for the episode wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you.